Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we were making our way to Capernaum here in Israel a town that was the base for Jesus' ministry in the Galilee when he was an adult. We're about to arrive and head into the site, but before we do that, let's recap what happened last time. As we made our descent to the second lowest lake in the world, the Sea of Galilee, I pointed out a few important things. First, you'll remember that the Sea of Galilee is not a large, salty body of water like we expect a sea to be. Rather, it's a big freshwater lake, and fishing was and still is very popular out on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, you can probably see some of the boats out there catching fish for the local restaurants. There are fishermen out there even right now. I'm convinced that some of the best fish in the world is available within several square kilometers of where we are now. It's also interesting to remember that Jesus' disciples were fishermen, Some were even from the small fishing villages that popped up on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, this big lake. I always love to think about the calling of Peter to be Jesus' disciple when I'm here at the Sea of Galilee, because those events would have taken place right here, somewhere in our line of sight, which is crazy to me. As the Bible says, Jesus was teaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, but the crowd was pressing in on him, and he needed to go out on the water to have some breathing room. And he sees Peter in a boat, and he asks Peter if he can get in his boat and then teach. And then Jesus teaches the people from the boat. He's out a little bit from the shore, and the people can listen as they sit on the shore. And we know sound carries quite well on water, so this would have worked out nicely. After Jesus finishes teaching, he tells Peter to go out into the deeper part of the lake where he's going to catch a lot of fish. Now, Peter can't rationally justify what Jesus had told him. He had already tried to catch fish that day on the Sea of Galilee and had no success. And Peter is an expert fisherman. He knows something just had to be off that day. The fish weren't coming. But he has to leave behind his pride and take Jesus' order by faith. Even an order as simple as go into the middle of this lake and cast your nets. And believing Jesus' word, he witnessed a miracle. He caught a ton of fish. And he ultimately responds by worshiping Jesus. And this is a moment where Jesus tells him that he's now going to have a career change. From now on, he'll be catching men. He's going to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, there are certain biblical accounts that really stick with me after I've been to the location where they took place here in Israel. And that's one of them. You know, it also reminds me that sometimes we think our human expertise gives us a full grasp of a situation. We may have the justification for why we are or are not going to do something. We can say, I'm the professional, I know what's best. But in reality, it is only God who knows the full picture. He knew exactly where and when the fish would bite for Peter. And if he knows something as simple as that, can't we trust he has all the large and small concerns of our lives in his hands too? Last time on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, we also had the opportunity 
to stop and see the Jesus boat. I'm so glad we were able to briefly swing by the museum that houses that first century boat. Although it may seem like a random hole-in-the-wall stop, you'll, you'll be surprised at how many people actually know of the Jesus boat and will be impressed that you've been there. Although the boat we saw isn't in the greatest condition, and I mean, it is from the first century, so we have to give it some grace, the boat still gives us a great picture of what the boat Jesus traveled around the Sea of Galilee on could have looked like. And while we don't know for certain, researchers have claimed, based on descriptions and archaeological evidence, that the ancient Galilee boat sitting inside a climate-controlled room uh, inside Kibbutz Ginosaur could have actually been Jesus's boat. The story of the boat's discovery also reminds me that anyone can be an amateur archaeologist and contribute to the field, even significantly. You definitely don't need a PhD to dig in the dirt and see what you come up with. And there's really no better place to do that than in Israel. There is history in every square centimeter of the land. As you remember, the Jesus boat was discovered by two brothers who were just walking along the beach of the Sea of Galilee. That's it. Although they were fishermen, they had a side passion for archaeology, and it led to what I would argue uh, is one of the greatest finds of the 1980s. Some of you have been picking up pottery as we walk and bringing it to me for identification. Although I'm no expert, these are fun ways for us to learn archaeology together and, and start to maybe see, well, what, what time period is this piece of pottery from? And we can start to understand time periods. You never know what you might step on in Israel. That's the honest truth. For all we know, when you pick up a pottery shard at any of our stops here in Israel, you might be holding a piece of a clay jar that one of the prophets used, or, or even one of Jesus' disciples. Well, now we're arriving at Capernaum, here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Let's hop on out. They only allow buses to go so far here at Capernaum, so we have a bit of a walk to the entrance. Okay, let me stop and pay. Okay, perfect. Tickets in hand. Let's head on in. And also, weird rule here, which you should be aware of, they allow photos of anything. But you can't take photos on your big camera. So for those of you capturing our adventures with your professional camera, you'll have to put that away for the time being. I really don't get that rule. You may have noticed as we walked in that this site doesn't have the typical logo stamped on the gate and at the ticket booth. Normally, archaeological sites in Israel are run by the Israel Nature and Parks Authority, but Capernaum is run by the Franciscans, so the rules aren't always super standard. Let's make our way over to the remains of the reconstructed synagogue. It's the first stop on our walk here inside the archaeological park. The first thing you may notice is the synagogue is a different color from all the other remains here. Everything in Capernaum was basically built of local black basalt stone. It would have been cheap and easy to find. But this synagogue is made of imported white limestone. And that emphasizes its elevated status. It got special treatment. It wasn't just a regular building. It was the synagogue. That's where people went to worship God. But you'll notice that there is a black basalt foundation to the synagogue. So keep that in mind. It will be important later when we talk about the synagogue from the time of Jesus. Let's go ahead and enter the synagogue. As we stand here, 
we notice the various parts of the building. There's the praying hall, the large courtyard, a patio, and other smaller partitions. Come over here and check out these humongous columns that would have helped carry the weight of the roof. But it's not just the size that I'm impressed by. Come close. Do you see the, the writing on them? The inscription here on the left is in Greek, and the other is in Aramaic. I'm not an expert in either language, but I did look this up ahead of time to be able to tell you. This line right here on, on this column reads, Herod, son of Monimos, and Justus, his son, together with his children, erected this column. It's just so cool. We literally have one of the benefactors of this synagogue from thousands of years ago, who left evidence of his involvement for us to examine today. Now, I told you on our drive over that Jesus would have taught at the synagogue at Capernaum, but he wouldn't have taught inside of this one. See, this synagogue is later than the time of Jesus. The archaeologists who excavated it say 4th century AD, that's the dating. And the expert whom I place a lot of trust in, Dr. Jody Magnus, says 6th century AD. You'd be amazed at how much ink has been spilled over this issue of, of dating the Capernaum synagogue, and it's way too complex for us to get into. I'll be honest, I really don't fully understand it. What I do know is that archaeologists will fight to the death to prove that their dating is correct. Just to give you an idea, uh, generally archaeologists are coming to these dates either 4th century AD or 6th century AD by using datable materials. So for example, they might find coins and pottery beneath the floor of the synagogue. And since those coins and pottery had to get there before the synagogue was constructed because then the floor would be built over it, uh, the synagogue has to then be, be newer than the date of those items. But discrepancies can arise, of course, um, maybe when someone dates a piece of pottery differently than the next archaeologist. So while we have a pretty nice reconstructed synagogue here at Capernaum, it's not from the time of Jesus. But we do know that there was a synagogue at Capernaum from the first century because the Gospels tell us that Jesus taught there. Take Mark's account which says that Jesus and the disciples went into Capernaum and Jesus entered the synagogue at Capernaum and was teaching there. Okay, so we've established Capernaum had a first century synagogue, but where is it? Well, if you come over here, you can see that archaeologists have dug under the floor of the newer synagogue to expose a lower layer. And that layer right there is a, is a black basalt layer. And it seems that those could be the remains of the synagogue from Jesus's time. Those from the later period maybe just built right on top of the first century synagogue. And the Franciscans here would certainly posit that. You'll notice that they have the hole roped off, and there's a sign in front of it that says, Remains of Jesus' Synagogue. And honestly, the first time that I came to Capernaum, I thought this was the correct conclusion. But here's the problem. Take a look around. Everything excavated at the lair of this supposed first century synagogue is basalt, just like it. Everything looks the same. There's actually no way to tell a house apart from a shop, apart from a synagogue. Today we think of synagogues as very special places. We would never confuse a synagogue with a house or a shop because synagogues are adorned in ways that clue us in that we're staring at a synagogue. But synagogues from the time of Jesus are not easily identifiable. Synagogues from the time of Jesus definitely didn't look like modern synagogues, and they probably wouldn't have gotten the special treatment 
of even the 4th century synagogue that we have here at Capernaum with its imported limestone and pillars that have inscriptions on them. And this ultimately goes back to the very definition of synagogue. Let's get into some linguistics here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. In Hebrew, synagogue is Beit Knesset. It simply means house of gathering. A house of gathering. Get this, the term synagogue is not synonymous with church or mosque. Those terms are signifying buildings with a clear religious purpose. But a synagogue, in its true sense, is simply a place where the people of the community could come together. Now, because the Jews were religious, synagogues would be used for religious purposes at times, such as when the community would come together and read the Torah. But synagogues also doubled as town halls and schools. Synagogues were just gathering places, houses of gathering, a Beit Knesset. But why do we think of synagogues today as places of worship? Well, this actually goes back to the destruction of the second temple. When the Jews had the temple in Jerusalem, they had a center of worship. And although sometimes they had to travel a distance, and the people here in Capernaum in the north would have had a journey to get to Jerusalem, you know, although there was travel involved, there was still a central location for everyone to go and offer sacrifices and be blessed and ultimately worship God. But after the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the Jews lost that. They didn't have a central place for worship. And it was synagogues that started to absorb some of the things that took place at the temple. Now, at first, the Jews probably thought that their temple would be rebuilt. After all, each time one of the previous temples had been destroyed, a new temple had been built. But this time was different. And soon the Jews saw that there wasn't hope for a new temple. So they turned to the synagogues in their communities. They already existed as gathering places But now synagogues really became associated with places of worship. Synagogues became like individual temples. And just as the Jerusalem temple received special treatment, it was certainly set apart compared to the rest of the buildings in Jerusalem. Well, in the same way, the synagogues in these communities became more decorated. The communities wanted their synagogues to be special like the temple was, because that was the place where God dwelt among his people. So when we look at archaeological ruins of cities and villages in the centuries following the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD, it's easy to pick out a synagogue. They took on an elevated status post-70 AD. But at the time of Jesus, we can't definitively distinguish synagogues from even regular houses when examining ruins. Ultimately, while it's interesting to think that the Second Synagogue at Capernaum was built on top of the first one, the one from the first century where Jesus taught, it's unlikely. That's not to say there isn't precedent for building a later synagogue on the ruins of the older one. That happens all the time. Even take the temple in Jerusalem. Whenever that got rebuilt, it was roughly in the same spot on top of the Temple Mount as the previous temple. And, you know, people argue about whether it was moved a few meters this way or that way, but generally speaking, the temple remained in the same spot, even when it was rebuilt several times. But here at Capernaum, we can't draw this conclusion. We can't say the newer synagogue was built on top of the Jesus synagogue from the first century because it's likely those builders from the fourth century didn't even know where the first century synagogue was. They were just staring at a bunch of basalt stone ruins. 
while I may have just made you a little sad that we can't say for certain the hole we're staring at underneath the later Capernaum synagogue isn't the remains of the first century synagogue, I think it's better to be archaeologically accurate and know the reality. I was tempted to leave this information out and let you just 100% believe that you're staring at the synagogue from the time of Jesus. And you may be. That's the thing. But there's ultimately no way to be certain, as the Franciscan inscription here claims. Sometimes a good tour guide has to tell the truth in love. Next up here on the Virtual Voyage, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, let's head over to the spaceship at Capernaum. Okay, there's not actually a spaceship, but come out of the courtyard of the synagogue we're currently standing in and look right over there to your right. Overtop the black basalt ruins is an octagonal building, and it kind of looks like it's floating. Well, in that spaceship is a church, and it's built over what is believed to be the remains of Peter's house. Let's walk over and check out the remains. So yes, the remains are black basalt, just like everything else from the first century time period here at Capernaum. So next you might say, well, Abigail, you just said that we couldn't even tell a synagogue apart from a house because everything is black basalt and looks the same. So if we can't even tell a synagogue and a house apart, how in the world are we supposed to know that this was Peter's house? And that idea is a good one. In fact, you'd be spot on if it weren't for a little extra evidence. See, it's, it's likely that people passed the word on that this was Peter's house. Peter was a significant disciple of Christ, so people wouldn't have forgotten about him. In the centuries following his death, excavators actually found that people converted the large middle room of the house into a church. And people even scratched graffiti into the walls of this house-turned-church. The inscriptions mainly say things like, Christ have mercy, or Lord Jesus Christ help thy servant, it's clear that this location was a pilgrimage spot for early Christians. Ultimately, people had kept up with the tradition that this was the house of Peter, and Christians wanted to go to it. Sometimes tradition can be a really helpful indicator, especially when used in conjunction with other forms of evidence, like the archaeological record. And as I've said a ton on this tour, the archaeological record is lacking from first century Capernaum. We can't even tell a synagogue apart from a house because everything looks the same. But we're able to come to a more substantial conclusion, simply because for centuries, people had passed down the message that this was Peter's house. The especially significant part of the tradition is that Helena, Constantine's mother, toured Israel in the early 300s AD. And people pointed her to a number of important spots, such as where Jesus died in Jerusalem, and in fact, that's one of the main reasons I contend that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem is actually the location where Jesus hung on the cross. Helena came only a few hundred years after that event took place, and people likely wouldn't have forgotten the spot where Jesus died, just as they likely wouldn't have forgotten the location of Peter's house. And of course, no one is going to steer the mother of the Emperor Constantine to the wrong spot. The fact that Helena was also pointed to this location as Peter's house, is only farther evidence, albeit evidence from tradition, that this actually is the house of Peter. And if this really is Peter's house, Jesus would have been right inside there, likely many times. We know he was in there at least once when he healed Peter's mother-in-law, 
from a bad fever. Imagine that. Jesus Christ likely stood right there, a few meters in front of where we are now standing. As we finish up our tour at Capernaum, I want to take a moment to consider some of the other events here. While traveling anywhere in the world, Israel included, can be fun, I want you to get more out of our adventures here in the land of Israel. I want you to ultimately deepen your understanding of the Bible as we see the very locations where those stories took place. With that in mind, let's go sit on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. It's warm and sunny out today, and we can watch the boats go by as we talk. And if you're hot, you can even dip your feet in the water. Plus, water always helps me think and reflect. So follow me down the hill to the shore. Ah, here we go. You may get a little sandy, but go ahead and take a seat. As we sit here at Capernaum, I want to read you a passage from Luke 7. It's probably an account that you've heard before. It's the healing of the Roman centurion's son. Close your eyes and listen, or maybe look around as I read. Remember that this story took place somewhere in this very area. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, Jesus entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. We soon need to head back to the bus, and we certainly can continue to ponder this passage, but let me make a few points. First, the Roman centurion is a Roman. That means he is representative of the Jews' enemy at this time. But Jesus doesn't care that the centurion is a Roman. Physical attributes and characteristics are nothing to God. It's all about the state of the heart. And so Jesus is ultimately impressed by a Gentile, a Roman, because of his faith. Jesus actually says that among the Jews, among Israel, he hasn't found such faith. Jesus judges the centurion's heart. That's it. Because of his faith, the centurion knows that Jesus can heal his servant. And in fact, he knows that Jesus doesn't even need to be physically present under his roof to heal his servant. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is all-powerful. He has all authority on heaven and earth. As the centurion recognizes, he can do anything by simply saying the word. My challenge to you as we head out of Capernaum is this. Where is your heart at today? 
You may check all the right boxes on the outside, but Jesus judges the inside. Would your faith impress Jesus? Do you take him at his word? If you don't, may today be the day where that changes. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we have the chance to learn a little more about archaeology by visiting a conservator's lab. It's an adventure you won't want to miss.